Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 1, and we're going to be going verse 1 through the beginning of verse 6 today. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You remember last week, by way of introduction, uh, we looked at the first three words, now the serpent, and we spent most of the time trying to figure out who this serpent character is, all right? Because you remember the serpent, he doesn't get any further description other than what we have right here in the story. We don't get any additional names, but you remember from last week's study how we had that 40-box flowchart and figured out he's got a big reputation all throughout the Bible, and we find out he's one and the same as the dragon. He's the one and the same as Satan, one and the same as the devil, and all the attending verses that associate with that. And we just That was just a sample that we looked at. Those 40 are just a sample. So we found out he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's a thief. Uh, he's got all kinds of stuff. So the character that we're familiar with when we talk about Satan and when we talk about the devil... He's, that's the character we're talking about, the serpent in the garden. I should say this, though. There is not consensus as to whether this character that shows up here in the garden is Satan taking on the form of a serpent or if it's a serpent indwelled by Satan. Do you get the difference? Whether it's Satan without any assistance of any created beast or if it's a created beast indwelled by Satan. And I suppose there's, you know, you could use scripture... Uh, to support either view. And it's not a really big point of contention, but it's something that there's just not unanimity on. We're going to be looking uh, today a couple verses that will lend itself a little bit to the uh, to the view that um, it's Satan indwelling an actual creature, just because of the words that are chosen here. So chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. I do want to look at and uh, back up a little bit into chapter 2. There's two different places in chapter 2 that I think we need to look at just really quickly. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Somebody might reading those. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. And then somebody else might be reading verses 16 and 17. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. All right, so flipping back, with those verses in mind, as a little bit of a background provided for this passage that we're looking at today. Going back then to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to start off with the very first word. I'm using the New King James Version. Some of you might be using a different version, but the New King James Version starts off with the word now. All right. As I mentioned this last week, just in brief, that uh, there is some passage of time between chapter 3 and what came preceding. 
We don't know how much time has passed by, but apparently there's enough time for an angelic rebellion to have happened. So there's an angelic rebellion that happened sometime prior to chapter 3. Some of your verses that you might want to look at if you're interested in doing more of a study along those lines uh, are going to be Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. You've got Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. Also Matthew 25, 41. 2 Peter 2.4. We're not going to look these up right now. I'm just putting up up here for further review or further study if you're interested. And then Jude 6. So if you want more information about the angelic rebellion that I'm talking about, those are some specifically say that that happened They don't. Prior? They don't mm-hmm. talk about the time. And this is then why it happened? They don't talk about the timing. And as to whether or not this is why it happened, there's a possibility there that that is the case. But it seems like this serpent, this character that shows up as we begin to look at this, it doesn't sound like he's experimenting with the idea of leading the woman astray, but rather he is actually intentionally doing it. Like he's already made up his mind he's going to go down this road. So it doesn't sound like this is the brand new time that he's engaged in this behavior. It sounds like this was a plan. This was a plan. All right, so the word now indicates that some passage of time has happened. Not sure how much. The next word is the serpent. We talked about those last week. We talked about these two words, the serpent, uh, the identity of that serpent. By the way, the introduction of the serpent here is in a rather... uh, You don't know that this is a bad guy yet. Eve doesn't know this is the bad guy, right? There's something going on in the way the serpent comes upon the scene where, yeah, it might cause a little red flag, like, whoa, what? The serpent? Who's this? I don't know anything about this. If you're reading this for the first time, you might not catch if you didn't... Well. If you could remove all of the baggage that you've ever heard about the serpent in the garden. I mean, who hasn't heard the story? Who hasn't had associated baggage with that? But if you're reading this for the first time, if you haven't ever heard anything about it, you just see the introduction of a new character, and you don't know anything about this new character. There might be some issues of, I wish I knew more about this. Is this a good guy or bad guy? We don't know, if you're the first-time reader, whether it's a good guy or bad guy. Now, the serpent was more cunning. The serpent was more cunning. Uh, some of your translations might say crafty. Uh, I, I think there's at least one translation out there that uses the word wily. Okay, This word only shows up one time. It shows up right here in Genesis. This is the only time it shows up in Genesis. But it actually shows up many times in the book of, say, Proverbs. And it's actually a word that can be translated in a positive way or a negative way. Okay, so our English translations that use the word cunning or that use the word crafty or that use the word wily, they are already interpreting it for us in the negative way. Okay, but if you run across this word as a Hebrew, somebody who speaks Hebrew or somebody who knows Hebrew, and you don't know the story, you run across the word and it's ambiguous. It could be good or it could be bad. The way that it's used in Proverbs, it could be translated for such things as prudent or clever or discerning, whereas in the negative, it would be cunning, wily, or crafty, all right? When it's used in the good sense, it's used to describe, uh, verses are used to describe escaping evil, or to perform remarkable deeds. So when this word has the positive sense, those are some of the verses that would use the word in that way. In the negative sense, it's a masterful manipulation of others. All right. So here we have this uh, ambiguous situation with the creature. We have an ambiguous situation regarding the use of this word. Could go negative, could go positive. All right. What's the next word? Now, the serpent was more cunning. 
If you have a New King James, what would, what would be the words that follow? More cunning than all the animals of the field. Okay, mine says, I think, all the beasts of the field. By the way, I'm going to stop here. This seems to place the serpent in the category of the beast. So this would lend credence to the view that maybe this is an actual creature, an actual serpent, uh, an actual animal created by God that is indwelled by Satan, as opposed to Satan taking on the form of a, of a serpent. Okay? So now the serpent was more cunning than all the beasts of the field. Uh, it also suggests something else. It makes it sound like that the beast of the field, the cunning is not separated from the beast of the field. It's not that this one was cunning and the others weren't. It's that it seems to imply there's an intelligence that's incorporated in the creation of the beasts, this one having the most. All right? Or there's a cunning. There's a whatever this quality is, it sounds like some of the other beasts have it as well, but this one has more so. All right? Now the serpent was more cunning than all the beasts of the field. What's the next phrase after? Is it little O, little R, little D? It's us. This phrase right here, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You've got this word right here. If you look in your Bibles, it's going to have a big L, but it's also going to have a capital O-R-D, but your capital O-R-D is usually going to be smaller type. All right? The yod Heh vav Heh. Okay? The unpronounceable name of God, or the Yahweh, or Jehovah. All right? The tetragrammaton, thank you. And this one right here, the word right here is Elohim. So here we have, this is, you remember from our previous studies, this is the title of God, this is the personal name of God. So Lord, the word we have here that we're looking at that's Lord is, is Yahweh, it's the personal name of God, whereas this one here, God is Elohim, it's the title of God. This is the majestic creator, and this is the personal, what we find out eventually, the redeemer, Okay. So this is a personal name, or the personal aspect of God, and the sovereign, or the majestic aspect of God. Okay. Uh, then all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. So it looks like from this word as well, over here, that this creature, the serpent, is in the category of not just the beast, but also in the category of made. This creature has been made. One thing about Satan is sometimes uh, in your false religions, you'll find the idea that uh, Satan has existed for, for all time, if you can even say that. Beyond time, before time. But that's not the case. He's, Satan is not eternally existent like God is. All right, And uh, sometimes along with that comes the idea that Satan and God, you know, they're in this uh, eternal struggle. It's good versus evil. And, oh, my goodness, don't know who's going to win. That's again, it's the end thing. No, that's not it at all. God is infinite, and in being infinite, he is infinitely greater than Satan. All right? So God is the creator. This creature is made. This creature is made. What's the next phrase? To the woman. He said to the woman, right? So it's talking about Satan here. He said to the woman. Okay, this is weird, right? Here we have a creature speaking. This is not something that we're used to, right? This is not something we're used to. But we'll find out. She ends up not being surprised. There's no record of her being surprised that the serpent is talking to her. All right. There's also this idea of cunning. I suppose if you're the most cunning creature of God's creation, that perhaps... The ability to speak might be involved in that. All right. By the way, with this phrase, to the woman, where's Adam? I mean, if you're, what is he, fishing? Is he, he's hunting? (laughs) He's tending the garden. There's one poet I ran across. He suggested that uh, he was, uh, that Adam was finding beautiful flowers to arrange as a garland for Eve's tresses. So he said to the woman, what does he end up saying to the woman? Did God really say? He doesn't say Lord God. He doesn't say Yahweh Elohim. He uses only Elohim. He uses only the title. 
He doesn't use the personal name of God. Subtle, but maybe something to be you know, put into the entire equation to see what's going on here. Eve doesn't seem to catch on that maybe this is a little bit of a slam in a sense. You know, that, uh, that this creature is referring to God not in the personal name, not including the personal aspect of it, but just including the title aspect of it. All right, did God really say, and he's planning doubt. You see that? He's already planting seeds of doubt. Did God really say? And the way that the Hebrew is formulated here, from what I read in the commentaries, this is supposed to suggest a, a, a pretended surprise in the way that it's formulated. Did God really say? Did God really say? As if it's already planting seeds of doubt in her mind before he even has to say anything else. Uh, so NIV has really, ESV has actually, uh, New King James Version has indeed. Did God indeed say? Did God actually say? Did God really say? What is it that he's, uh, what's his take on what God said? What does it say? Not to fruit from any tree. Did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? What was God's actual statement in the previous chapter regarding the trees and the fruit? You can eat from any tree except for that. Right. You can eat from any of them except for this one. Any of them except for this one. Two categories. The overwhelming big category being free rain. Have at it. You can eat from those. Other category, one tree, don't eat from that one. Right? What does Satan do? He's twisting it, isn't he? See how he's twisting the very spoken word of God? He's twisting and says, did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? Right? So he's twisting the very words of God. This is one thing to notice about Satan's attacks, even in our lives, even to this present day. It's not uncommon for Satan to take God's very words and twist them. Now, it's one thing if you get attacked by Satan and you're able to confront him with God's word. In fact, this is the experience of Jesus in the wilderness and the three different temptations that came his way. You remember Jesus in the wilderness. It's 40 days have gone by. He's hungry, it says. And Satan comes and tempts him. Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you make those stones into bread? After all, you're hungry. You would want to eat some bread. Jesus counters with the word of God. All right. The second one, Satan takes Jesus and says, Hey, check it out. I got all these kingdoms of the world. I can give them to you. If you're the son of God, sure, you know, the kingdoms are going to come to you and they're going to bow down to you, right? Well, that doesn't seem to be happening, but I tell you what, you worship me, I'll make it happen. They'll all come, they'll bow down to you. You worship me. Jesus counters with the word of God. Satan picks up a clue there. By the third time, Satan's saying, this isn't working so far, because every time I come at him, he brings back a counter with the word of God. It's as if he says, I need my next attack to involve the word of God. And he does. His next attack, you remember, he takes Jesus and he says, Hey, if you're the Son of God, why don't you just throw yourself off the temple? Because, as the Word of God says, He'll take care of you. He'll send His angels to watch over you. Wouldn't want to stub your toe. He'll watch over you. He uses God's Word and twists it in such a way as if to try to get Him to take the bait. Jesus counters and it says what? Satan left him for an opportune time. He decided this isn't working. He left for an opportunity, looking for an opportunity. So he can take God's own word and twist it in your life. What does that require of us? A, we know God's word, right? Because if we don't know God's word well enough to even counter with God's word in a place where Satan might attack us where there isn't the word of God being twisted, if we can't even do that, how are we going to do when he brings God's own word twisted up and shoves it to us? 
All right, so we need to we need to know God's word. Uh, so he said to the woman, "Did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden?" All right, what's the next? How's it go from there? The woman said to the serpent. Well, the woman said to the serpent, "Did she say?" Oh my goodness, you're a talking serpent. Says the serpent, we may eat fruit from what? Trees in the garden. From trees in the garden. Okay, keep going. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. All right, and trees in the garden, but God did say, you may not. Go ahead. You must not eat fruit. Must not eat fruit. From the tree that is in the middle of the garden. From the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Did God really say not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said, so the woman's responding to the serpent without any apparent surprise, as if maybe... This is not abnormal for her. As if maybe they've had conversations before. It would be speculation. We don't know. But I, I throw that out there to, to show that she doesn't seem to be surprised from the recorded words we have here. All right, so she's responding, and she says, We may eat fruit from trees in the garden, but God, she ends up taking the bait that he gave her. That, that combination we had up here where it said, Lord God, the personal name, and the title... That's a combination we saw all through chapter 2. That's a combination we saw 11 times in a row, without any breaks, without any deviation from that. And then we get here, and the first time we see only the title of God since chapter 2, it, uh, since chapter 2, verse 4, I think it is, is, that, is when Satan brings it up. When Satan refers to God in a, in a personal way. And she ends up responding by using his choice of wording. She ends up responding to the serpent using his choice of wording. We made fruit from trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not... By the way, when we asked earlier, where's Adam? He's not in the picture, right? He's not in this event, at least not so far. He doesn't seem to be standing next to her as this is going down. But he is involved in this conversation and a little bit in this sense. When you see the word you here and throughout this conversation... When you see her read, say, we, these words are in the plural. So when Satan attacks them and says, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? And when you see the use, those are all plural. So he's implied in the conversation that they're having, even though he's not actually there. You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So it sounds like they're not standing next to the tree, right? Because she's referring to a tree by its location. If they were standing next to the tree, it seems like she would be able to say, but we're not supposed to eat from this tree right here. right? But instead she says, we're not supposed to eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, as if it's somewhere else, right? As if the location is somewhere else. In the midst of the garden, I think the next part says something like, nor shall we, nor shall we touch it. Nor touch it or you will die. Those two, two verse passages that we looked at from chapter 2, do you see the prohibition? Of touching the prohibition is not there in chapter 2 when God set down the rule for Adam don't eat from that tree he doesn't include don't touch 
But somewhere, by the time it gets to Eve, there's don't touch. So how did that happen? This could be an example of the first time where we see a setting of a, a hedge around the law. Is that what you were going to say? Okay. Adam was a rabbi. <laughs> there we go. Fence around it. All right. So put a fence or a hedge around the law. If you don't, if you're not familiar with that concept, here's what it is. Basically, if the rule is don't eat from the tree, and you put the fence around it of don't touch, then you're certainly not going to eat. Because if you keep yourself from touching, how are you going to eat? Right. So it provides a layer, a buffer of protection around the prohibition. The prohibition. Don't eat. Hey, if we make it don't touch, we've expanded that buffer, and it's going to make it that much harder for us to uh, violate God's law. All right? So this could be an example of the first time where we see that happening, putting a fence or a hedge around the law. So it could be that God said to Adam, don't eat from the fruit, and Adam conveys it to his wife. Because we don't have any record that she was told by God directly. She may have been. She finds out somehow. She may have been told by God directly, or she may have found out from Adam. If she was found out by Adam, how would have Adam? Well, how would Adam have presented it? Perhaps he presented it as, you know what? We had this discussion. God and I. He made it so serious that, in my mind, I'm going to tell you, don't even touch it. It could be by the time she's re, she's recounting the don't touch aspect of it, that she doesn't even know that that was a part of the original prohibition. That in her mind, it's been established that's also a requirement without knowing that by touching, you won't die. You get what I'm saying? Okay. Do not touch it or you will die. By the way, look at the punishment here. Terrible punishment, right? Die. Terrible punishment. Does Adam or does Eve know what that means? There hasn't been any death yet. From their point of view, experientially, they haven't experienced death. So it's a punishment that's sort of an unknown, even though they would both admit it would be serious. Here's why I say that. Because when we are tempted to engage in sin, sometimes in our minds we might use this rationalization and say, ah, how bad could it really be? I mean, I've never, I can't imagine it could be really. I mean... What's the worst that could happen? Perhaps sometimes our sins are such that we don't know what the punishment will be, as if that makes it not so bad. Nor touch it or you will die. What's the next part? No, you would not die at all. All right. Somebody else read from another version. You will not surely die. Okay. You will not surely die. And then do we have a third translation? You guys have the same one. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die, or you will not indeed die, or you will not die. All right, these are the same words that God ended up using when he was talking to Adam about the punishment of eating from the fruit, with the exception of one word, and it's the not. Satan is negating the very, using the same words, sticking one additional word that changes the whole thing. He's putting in the not, all right? You will not surely die. Or you will surely not die. He's using God's own words and adding to them and creating an exact opposite. What's happening here? Somebody's lying. Somebody's lying. Eve doesn't know what to make of this, right? Because now she's confronted with this possibility. This entity over here says one thing. This entity over here says another thing. It's exactly the opposite. It can't both be right. Somebody's lying. 
The liar, Satan, you remember last week we looked at one of those little lines, went to the box that said liar, another box that said father of lies. The liar is calling God a liar. Satan is calling God the liar. You will not die. He's countering God's very argument that said you will die. Somebody is lying. Somebody's wrong. All right? The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. What's the next phrase? God knows when you eat of it. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. There he is again. He's using that impersonal uh, title of God, knowing good and evil. So here you have Satan. His reply is, The servant said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. All right, we know how the story ends. Was it a good thing for them to have done this? Was it a good thing to have their eyes opened? You know what? Sometimes in life, it's not a good thing to have your eyes opened. There are some things that it's just better to not have your eyes open. And in this sense, if they hadn't fallen, if that means their eyes would not have been opened, they would have been in a better place. There are some things you don't want your eyes open to. And if God has determined that he doesn't want your eyes to be open to something, and you decide by your free will to choose otherwise, it's not, it's not an improvement. All right? For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Here's a weird thing, kind of ironic. They already are like God. They're made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God, and he's presenting it as if there's something extra out there for you that you don't have yet. Knowing good and evil. That's right, knowing good and evil. A couple points of irony here. Notice the like God. Number one, point of irony, like God. They already are. They already are like God. Number two, when it talks about being made in the image of God, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, if you look at verse 26, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. What's the next part of that? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The serpent is in the category of the stuff they're supposed to have dominion over. And the serpent is having dominion over them. So, irony number one, they already are like God. Irony number two, this dominion arrangement is getting screwed up. They're choosing to be dominated by the thing they're supposed to dominate. All right? Number three, number three, they're supposed to obey God. This whole thing was, when God made this arrangement, the whole thing was, and to test your obedience, I've got one tree over here. And really, when it comes down to it, you're to be fruitful, multiply, you're to tend the garden, and don't eat from the tree. <laughs> That's all there is. <laughs> but instead, they decide, Eve's deciding, I think I might go obey the serpent, as opposed to obey God. All right. And then uh, one-fourth irony, fourth point of irony, is about contentment. Somehow, Satan is trying to convince and is uh, making headway in convincing her that of all the trees in the garden that she has free access to, this one little tree over here is the one she really wants. And he ends up succeeding, right? She can have access to and eat from any of the trees in the garden, but the irony is she wants that one she can't have more than those. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's talk about that a little bit. Here's an irony. Knowing good, they already know good. They already know good. The only part of the equation they don't have, that she doesn't have, is the knowing the evil. 
The sales pitch is such to make the evil the thing to be desired over all of the good. Knowing good and evil. So what's the next verse? The woman saw the tree. Remember how I said that they weren't standing next to the tree? Remember that? But now she's apparently taken a little walk back to the middle of the garden where the tree is. Because now she sees the tree. Right? And you know what's funny is the conversation with Satan is done. He's done talking. He's not in the conversation anymore. So apparently the conversation is wrapped up. And who knows if it's immediately or if there's a, a little time that's gone by. She decides to take a little walk. Really thinking about what he said. Well, let me go take a look at that tree again. Mm -hmm. I'll just take a walk. I, I'm not going to touch. Mm -hmm. Just going to take a little walk over there. And what happens? The woman saw the tree as being good for food. What's that word? Delightful. To the eye. To the eye. Next. And the tree desirable. And a tree desirable. Render one wise. Okay. So the woman saw the tree as being good for food. Turn back to that passage that we looked at when we started off today. Genesis 2.9. What does it say over there in describing the tree? And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow around trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So already we see that God has already made every tree meeting qualities one and two of the three here. You see that from that other passage? The other trees, all the trees that God has made that they have access to already are good for food. All the other trees that God has allowed them access to already are delightful to the eye. All the trees that they are permitted to touch and eat from already have those two qualities. Yet she thinks she's missing out on something. Let's talk about this. Saw the tree as being good for food. This word so far, every time it's been used, the one who determines what good is, who is, is, is who? It's God. Remember in the creation week, and God often would end up saying, oh, that's good. That turned out good. <laughs> I do good work. <laughs> Right? And at the end, he, ends up, he says, well, it was very good. Right? God's the one that determines what's good. And then when it gets to man being alone, what, what does it say there? Oh, well, it was not good. <laughs> it's not good that man's alone. So what does he do? He creates woman. All, right? All along, up to this point, good is something that's determined by God, but she is determining for herself what good is. Sometimes in our lives, we think we know better than God does. Right? God knows what's good for us. But sometimes we think, oh, you know what, in this one area, I got, I think I got this one. I think I know better than you. You might think, oh, that's, we would never talk to God like that. Don't we? Don't we, right before we're about to sin, say, I think this is good for me. When you can hear the angelic realm go, no! <laughs> no, that's not good for you. <laughs> She's determining for herself. She's taking upon herself the role of God in determining what's good. All right, good for food, delightful to the eye, and a tree desirable to render one wise. This word right here that we have translated in our English uh, versions as desirable, in Hebrew this word is hamad. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. 
Who knows where we're going? What's this chapter characterized by? Ten, Ten Commandments. Good job, Mike. Ten Commandments. What does verse 17 say? You shall not covet. This word that's used here for desirable is the same word that's translated covet in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. One of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. What would they say to Eve? Okay, you know what? This tree that you're looking at right now, good for food? Maybe, but all the other trees are too. Desirable to the eye? Yeah, but maybe, but all the other ones are too. Oh, but you shall not covet. Right? And a tree desirable to render one life. What is coveting? It's wanting something you don't have. It's feeling like you're discontent or not happy until you have something that you don't have. Do you need it? No, you don't need it. You might think you do. You might be able to convince yourself, I need this. But you really don't. Did she? No, she didn't. Physical hunger? No. Could be satisfied by any of the other trees. There's something else going on here. Good for food, delightful to the eye, and a tree desirable to render one wise. She is coveting. She's engaging in covetousness here. And then turning then, what does it say? She took some and ate it. Uh, by the way, what kind of fruit is this? It's an apple, right? It's a pomegranate, right? Pomegranate, okay, pomegranate. People were to vote on the type of fruit, most of the time you're going to see that the apple gets to be the, the favored fruit to be shown in, in your paintings of this and whatnot. And a lot of those are from the era when uh, Latin was a, a popular language. So they speculate that perhaps the reason a lot of people associate the apple with the fruit in this story is because the Latin word, uh, this is kind of fun, uh, the Latin word for evil is malus, and the Latin word for apple is malum. And that perhaps somebody originally did play on words and chose the malum to represent the malice, the apple to represent evil. But it, yeah, it doesn't say what kind of fruit it was. Uh, the only mention we have in this whole passage of any fruit is actually fig. And that's where the leaves came from that covered up their uh, nakedness later on in the story. All right. So she took some of it and ate it. She took some and ate it. Okay, if you're the woman and you're under the impression that the prohibition is don't eat and don't touch, and you get to the tree and you're sizing up this situation and you're thinking, oh, it looks good for food, ignoring that all the rest of them are good for food too. You're looking, oh, it's desirable, it's pretty. It, it appeals to my eye, and so do all the other ones. And then the third prohibition, and it's desirable to render one wise. That's one quality that this one has that the rest don't have. I think there's a little nervousness. You think her heart maybe starts pounding as she reaches up and grabs that first piece of fruit. Eh, don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. She's thinking, don't touch, right? What does she do? She, eventually, she ends up touching it. Does she die? In her mind, when she touches it and she doesn't die, she's sold, right? She doesn't realize, though, that she hasn't crossed the line all the way. She, it's not the point of no return. Because she hasn't eaten of it. The prohibition was don't eat from it. But when she takes it, when she touches it and realizes, I didn't die, she thinks God's the liar. And she thinks Satan told the truth. Well, I touched it. Nothing's happening. I guess I've gone this far. Might as well see what... I mean, I, I, God was lying to me and Satan's telling the truth. Huh. Maybe. I mean, see, I'm not dying. And if he's telling the truth, then I can eat it. 
I'll be why? She's done for. It's no different than the sins that we enter into. A lot of times our sins are knowing sins. We engage in something we know beforehand going into it that we've been told this is a bad idea. Yet we incrementally tiptoe into that area thinking, oh, nothing's happened yet. Maybe I can let myself go a little more. Maybe the words that come out of our mouths are more harsh than they used to be. Maybe the way we treat somebody is a little bit further beyond what we used to engage in in treating somebody. Maybe the places we've gone or the things we've done or the things that we've seen, the thoughts that we've entertained, we allow ourselves to go a little further because nothing's really happened to me yet. And we enter into this justification that takes us spiraling down. I, this morning I came into briefing. Boxes of donuts sitting out on the table. I'm like, no. No, there's no donuts today. Come on now. And I'm thinking to myself, and I in fact said it out loud. Somebody passed by, and I said out loud, how come it's always on the day that I'm weak? <laughs> right? Because I didn't have a good breakfast this morning. And that's the thing I always tell everyone <laughs> up at the couch. Say, well, don't give in to that temptation. Yeah, and I go, how come it's always on the days that I'm weak? So already, I know there's a battle. There's donuts sitting over there. The lids are open, and there's all kinds of different ones. And what do I do? I go, well, maybe there isn't the kind I like over there. Uh, let's go look. <laughs> Maybe I'm just, I'll just take a look and I'll assure myself that I don't want any of those. And like Eve walking to the tree, oh, I walked beautiful. over to the donuts and I looked. And what happens? Oh, they were delightful to the eye. <laughs> I tell you what, they look good for food. I smell sometimes. That's it. And I and I looked, and you know what I found out? There was one in particular that made me want to pick it. I wanted to pick that one in particular. And what did I do? I did. I got it. And I pulled it up. And I went to my, I said to myself, this is not a good idea. This is a bad idea. And then what did I do? I, I wrapped it up. I'm not going to. I'll just wrap it up. I'll take it with me. I'll give, maybe I'll give it to my clerk. Maybe. Even though she's told me, don't bring me donuts. So I just, and Rich White walks in. Hey, you bring that to your clerk, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah, I, I'm on your lies. Man, I think I'm getting away with it. But he knows me, so I'm like, uh. I get up here, and Gloria traditionally doesn't come right on time. And so it's and just sitting there, and I'm thinking, man, it's just sitting there. Nothing's happened yet. No, I'm not in trouble yet. I'll just eat a little bit. I'll just have a little bit. And then, and then I start eating, and then I'm like, i got to make this look good, and I'll give her the other half, right? And then I, I eat a quarter of it. Oh, that's pretty good. Actually, it's not real good, but it's good enough to keep going. So then I eat another quarter. I'm at half. And I go, you know what? It doesn't look right. If I had cut it, it would look right for Gloria and I could give it. It, it looks all you know, ratty because I broke it apart and I've already eaten half. Like, and, I just, and I ate the whole stinking donut before 8.30. What flavor was it? Blueberry. <laughs> it was a blueberry uh, um, old-fashioned with, with glaze all over it. It, is this not the same situation as we experience today? It is. It's the same thing. Here's the thing, though. Satan's tactics, what do we see here? There's a couple of different things that we see here. We could do a little Monday morning quarterback and say, why did you ever fall into sin? You go, how did I get here? How, how did this happen? And if we look at how this happened, if we look at the tactics Satan used, didn't he use ambush? I mean, he didn't declare, okay, by the way, I'm going to attack you right now, so get ready. No, she didn't know the attack was on. It was an ambush. 
How about accusations? He is an accuser. That's actually the meaning of the word devil. It means accuser. He accuses God of lying. Another tactic, uh, doubt. Planted seeds of doubt. Doubting the goodness of God. Calling into question the generosity and graciousness of God. How about half-truths and outright lies? Half-truths and outright lies. We need to be ready to respond to stuff like this. Temptation involving covetousness. Whispering in our ear, here's something you won't be happy with until you have it, even though we don't need it. Sometimes even trying to sell us the idea that it's something we need. All right, let's wrap it up. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you made a way to have the slate wiped clean. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be wise. To be wise to the devil's schemes. Because we know that he wasn't content just to take down the first woman. But he's out for all of us. But Lord... One of the ways to combat that is to be strong in your word. Help us, Lord, to armor ourselves, to put on the full armor of God. Help us, Lord, to use well the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Help us to know your word well enough that we can counter these attacks with Scripture. And Lord, even though our hearts are desperately wicked, we pray, God, that you would scream in our ears when the times are coming when we enter into areas we shouldn't be in to not walk up to the donut box to not walk up to the tree but to turn and walk the other way to cut it off before the battle gets worse lord we also are to recognize that it's we're not called to walk through this life beaten down but to be more than conquerors lord the christian warrior who is covered in your armor and wielding skillfully the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's the one who is pulling back people who are on the brink of perishing. That's the one that it says the gates of hell will not prevail. Help us, Lord, to yearn to be that well-equipped and skilled. Help us, Lord, to want to be used by you mightily as victors in this battle. Thank you, Lord, that greater are you in us than he that is in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.